Hello and welcome to the Stock Podcast. I'm Nate Abercrombie, the host of the only investing podcast that gives everyone the chance to hear public company CEOs and CFOs describe their business and provide the investment case for their company. In this episode, the Stock Podcast is really excited to bring you an interview with Michael Rucker, who is the CEO and founder of Scout Clean Energy. This interview, for me at least, was a lot of fun to do because my relationship to Michael goes back a little ways. Michael is the individual who hired me on as a financial analyst at Clipper Wind Power. Michael decided he was going to start his own renewable energy company called Scout Clean Energy. And while it's something that I didn't realize until I sat down with Michael to have this interview with him, but not only did he found Scout Clean Energy, the renewable energy developer and owner operator, but he also has a separate company that does O&M services for renewable energy facilities. So the guy is a true entrepreneur. It's a real pleasure to have him on the podcast. And I hope you learn a lot about renewable energy, particularly wind. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Michael Rucker, the founder and CEO of Scout Clean Energy. Michael Rucker, thank you so very much for joining the IWTP podcast. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on the program, especially because we have some history. Oh, thank you, Nate. It's great to be here. It's good to see you again. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. So if you don't mind, just start off talking about your background. Well, I've been in the renewable energy industry basically my whole career. So I started out as an economist at the uh, International Energy Agency, which is kind of an intergovernmental organization. And I found that to be just too bureaucratic, even though I had basically directed my whole education to do that job. Yeah. So I arrived, said, this isn't for me, and uh, learned about a company that was doing renewable energy certificate trading. This is back in about 1998, 99. And uh, they had just been pioneering these markets. And I used them as a case study for my IEA trips to developing countries to show them how we regulate energy and environment in the, in the OECD countries, the industrialized countries, ended up jumping ship and set up a trading desk in London and then got moved back to California. And uh, that got me into the private sector side of energy. Since then, um, I uh, started working for, I actually, I was doing uh, scheduling and settlements so kind of power market operations as well as renewable energy certificate trading and got a job with this company as a consultant called Enron Wind. <laughs> they, were, they were having trouble selling energy from their merchant wind power plants because their credit rating basically tanked after the energy crisis. So GE came and acquired Enron Wind out of the bankruptcy and I became a General Electric employee. So I can say I never actually worked for Enron. <laughs> so I was at GE during really the beginning of the commercialization of the wind industry and um, started to pick up also natural gas and hydropower. My real love was wind and eventually got a call to come back to California and be a developer. And uh, that was with Clipper Wind Power, working for Jim Dielson's company. Jim was the father of wind in the United States. And frankly, I just couldn't say no. Development's really a, a fun job at just all aspects of, of project development, technology, operations. It all comes together in that job, basically. Yeah. So I did that for a few years. Eventually got a call to run a development shop for a German developer. Brought me to Colorado. They left the market in 2013, and that set me off as an accidental entrepreneur, effectively, in 2014. Great, yeah. And so Clippers, where you and I met. Unfortunately, we didn't get any time really to work together because I think you took that job with the German company maybe a few weeks before I showed up in California. But so could you talk a little bit about Scout Energy, the company you're, you currently 
run and manage just the origin story of Scout. Yeah, yeah. Well, that came out of um, the German developer leaving the market at the end of 2013, the wind energy market in the U.S. So I'd put together a team between 2010 and 2014 and uh, set up shop here in Boulder, Colorado. And I just couldn't accept the fact that we were going to break up and go in all different directions. So pretty quickly in early 2014, got together with uh, two of our employees from the previous organization, our head of construction and the head of operations and maintenance. And we started a company called Harvest Energy Services. So that's a, a wind operations maintenance and eventually a construction management company in wind. And basically we started that with money out of our own pockets as a three-way partnership started in April of 14 and we got our first jobs in July, August that year. And it's continued to grow since then. We have about 110 employees in that business now, and it's still affiliated to Scout. This development addiction that I have, I, I just couldn't cure it. So towards the end of 2014, I raised private equity funds and bought a development in West Texas, an early stage wind development. My company Harvest developed the project effectively as a consultant and um, we were able to bring that to a financial close in February of 16. So we were able to sell the project ultimately to First Reserve, which became BlackRock later. Um, they were acquired by BlackRock. So getting that project in place with a small team, really a development team of five people for a 230 megawatt project with a 27 mile, 345 kV transmission line, you know, a very complex development in a difficult part of the world to get a project done was a great success for us and gave us the impetus to really continue our development. And it led to spinning off Scout from Harvest Energy Services. And I'd always been involved in the Boy Scouts and I was on the board of directors of the Long Peaks Council here in Colorado. So I was trying to think of a good name and uh, since the development company is kind of looking forward and uh, always looking for new opportunities, I figured we'd be scouting them out. So that's great. Uh, we chose the name Scout and uh, put together a portfolio of, of wind projects that were targeting the phase out of the production tax credit in the U.S., which is basically under a four-year program where it was ratcheted down from 100% to 80%, 60 to 40, and then eventually to zero. And that year, 2016, was the year when you could establish a project that would get that 100% credit. So our, our pitch basically was that we have a portfolio of projects that we can qualify in time to get this. We just need uh, the financial wherewithal to progress the developments and make the commitments to keep them on that track. And I was lucky to get um, GE Energy Financial Services uh, to come in and provide some early stage seed money to allow us to establish those projects and then qualify them by starting construction and harvest our affiliate capable of managing the construction, did the work to kind of get them, get them running. We, we did excavations, roads, acquired transformers, all in a very calculated plan to qualify the projects to at least get the 100% credit yeah. ultimately. And by design, the idea was the GE's position would be bought out. So uh, we did that in early 2017 and brought on Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners, which is a private equity fund based in Jersey, UK, with offices in Australia, London, and uh, Houston. And uh, Quinbrook effectively took out the GE position. So while GE, while you were using GE financing, what, did, were you required to use GE turbines? Yeah, part of the, the deal was that we would use General Electric turbines and General Electric would have the ability to participate in the financing for the projects. Mm -hmm. 
which frankly was fine with me. They make a good product. I used to work there. Yeah. A lot of my peers who I worked with years ago were now in management positions there. So it's a very friendly collegiate kind of environment to really work in tandem to you know bring projects to success. Yeah. So that's been a very successful yeah. relationship for us. And how did you come across Quinbrook? And, and I'm just curious for any potential wind developers out there, how, how do you secure financing for a company like yours? Actually, just backtracking just a little bit, the, the affiliation between Harvest and Scout, what is that affiliation and, and what is the relationship and, and just kind of the structure, if you could describe that, that would be helpful. Harvest is, as we describe it, an affiliate by common management. So we still have common managers between Scout and Harvest, but uh, it's currently still owned by the original partners. Okay. However, we're looking at potentially changing that early this year and merging the companies together. For me as the founder of both companies, in my mind, they are still the same company, yeah. <laughs> but legally they truly are separate, but that might not last for much longer, actually. I see. Yeah. Okay. But Harvest um, you know, works in a different market. It provides third-party O&M services to other companies. It's an established brand already in, in the operations maintenance business in wind. So it'll continue to operate as Harvest in any any case. And Scout will continue to be the development owner operating company for a portfolio of distinct assets that we control. Okay. And then with respect to Quinbrook, so, so how did you learn about them and how did you, I guess just, it's very interesting for me as somebody who, um, thinks about starting businesses because now I'm doing this podcast, but I don't need financing, but somebody like you who's dealing with large capital intensive types of projects, how did you discover Quinbrook or did Quinbrook discover you guys? And then how they ultimately became, you know, one of your big financial backers. In early 2017, actually towards the end of late 2016, we were in a position where we had blown through the commitments that we had gotten from our original seed investors. We had blown through it basically because we were more successful than we anticipated. So it was actually a positive story. We identified more projects that we found to be viable and were worthy of actually sinking money into. So uh, commitments that would, were supposed to take us through a nine-month kind of term, like a child, <laughs> uh, actually were done in about three months. So we could see that pretty quickly we need new financing and um, you know the original investors had a defined commitment and they weren't really willing to put more in. They were not developers per se. They had other, obviously other goals to sell turbines and provide financing. Yeah. So that sent me to the market earlier than I thought to get the uh, long-term financing for the company. And I think that was very fortuitous that we were in a hurry really because what you might do in a situation like that is run a process. So we have our early rounds of capital in place. We're looking for more permanent capital equity investment and um, you could go to a broker or run your own process, line up a whole bunch of different potential investors, go through the dog and pony show, the, you know, with the data rooms and all of the project information and find the best deal. Well, the reality is for that kind of company at an early stage in, you know, a five, seven to 10 year relationship, it really is more of a marriage than just a transaction. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, what really proves to make Something like that successful is a very, very good working relationship. I mean, the capital needs to be there, but you need to be very aligned in terms of strategy. You need to be aligned in terms of governance processes and the people need to have a good fit. Yeah. So in the end, I went to people <laughs> who I'd known previously and it was a very, very small list. 
and um, the options kind of got laid out uh, strategic, merge into a strategic company. One was kind of a hybrid. It was a yield co with the development arm. And then the third option was uh, the Quinbrook Group. And I had met the Quinbrook managing partners because they had been uh, managing directors of another fund that um, back in 2013, actually, we closed a sale of a project to them. So I was familiar with the individuals at that time. They spun off and created their new fund. So Quinbrook was really at a startup phase at the same time that we were effectively. Um, So I felt comfortable with the people and we were very aligned in terms of strategy and goals. What it really came down to was that um, merging into strategic was not a fan favorite with our employees here. And uh, this is a team that had come together in 2010. And um, a lot of our success was based on the fact that we were a cohesive team that worked well together. Um, all the drama that you might see in a situation like that, we'd worked through years before. <laughs> we're very focused on execution and getting things done. So merging the strategic basically means breaking that up, a major culture change. And although, I mean, to this day, it might have been the best deal for us all, frankly. But for us, by taking on the private equity investment, we are basically business as usual with the capital that we need to really be successful. Yeah. So the corporate culture, although we've grown a lot from one to about 130 people since 2014, effectively, you know, the culture still remains largely the same. And uh, we have our same kind of management decision-making process, obviously with the board and reportability to you know, obviously our fund investors and a process around that. But for the most part, it's business as usual, but with a lot more opportunity. Yeah. And, and so could you talk about your portfolio, primarily the, so the Absolutely. assets yeah. that you currently have that you're developing and just where you are in the development timeline with some of those projects that are maybe closer to the finish line? Yeah, our, our portfolio is a, a unique one in the sense that, uh, you know, we started from zero. So we put together a selection of greenfield assets, but they all started out on the same timeline. Normally you would have projects that are on different development timeline, timelines and horizons, but we have a portfolio that basically is set to enroll starting the year 2020 and then in the few years after that. So uh, it's a very diverse portfolio. We're in 10 different states, every power market except for New England and New York. We'd actually like to get into New York in terms of an acquisition. But the diversity, I think, is important to us. And I think our investors appreciate it because we get diversity in terms of markets and regulatory drivers. We get wind diversity in terms of production. We get regulatory diversity even on the local level. In some places we see opposition, others we don't, et cetera. So we have our fingers in quite a few different baskets, really, and we're trying to develop a portfolio of projects that'll give us an opportunity in PJM, for example, as opposed to being too heavily weighted in Texas, Oklahoma, ERCOT, SPP, where we also have projects. But we can also go to the Pacific Northwest, Northern California, those other markets basically to provide diversity if those markets don't hit or become oversaturated, which is one of our challenges right now. Yeah. So uh, the projects are um, about 2,400 megawatts in total. Mm-hmm. And they range from the largest, actually, we just committed and is in construction right now. It closed at the end of last year. It's a 300 megawatt project. But uh, by size, the smallest that we're actively developing is 98 megawatts. 
So the scale is relatively large. Back when we were at Clipper, we were happy to do a plan of 50 or 60 megawatt project. Yeah. <laughs> um, now it's difficult to make the economics pencil for a project of that size. Yeah. So the average size is probably around 200 megawatts in total. Yeah. And, and so do you, once you get a project, a, a project across the finish line, do you own and operate or do you then sell the project or do you use some of these financing structures that are maybe particular to renewable energy, partnership flips, that type of thing? What is sort of the stru project structure and business model for Scout? Our, our business model and also the business model of Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners is to be an owner-operator. So we primarily are developing for ownership. There are some cases where we are looking and find attractive the idea of selling a build transfer, particularly to a utility. But for the most part, other than those exceptions, we're trying to build for our own ownership. And uh, we have about 200 megawatts operating and 300 megawatts more in construction. So by the end of this year, we'll be at 500 megawatts. And uh, we're looking to get to roughly 1,000 megawatts around the year 2021. Yeah. At, at the point where you hit 1,000 megawatts, or is there a, a sort of a threshold in the future to go public and maybe Quinbrook monetize their investment through an IPO? It kind of depends on where what market conditions are when you look that far into the future. Yeah. Um, you know, Quinbrook uh, is a long-term owner, but it's also a closed fund. So um, there'll come a time when, um, after those investments have been made, you'll need to produce the yield that basically the fund has promised. So what that could amount to us would be, depending on market conditions, at times IPOs have worked out a yield co-model for other companies or sale to a strategic or bringing on strategic investors. I think what's really interesting about our company If you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member. To become a member, just visit stockpodcast.com. Members have access to all full-length episodes, and depending on the membership that you purchase, you can even have access to the transcripts. So just go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click membership at the top. Also, if you really enjoyed the music, you should check out Danheim. That's D-A-N-H-E-I-M. Mike at Danheim gave me permission to use the music for the podcast, and so a huge thanks to Danheim. And with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.